Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing on uh, in our study of the book of Acts, uh, which we've uh, been in for some time. We've called this this series Purpose and Power, because that is really what the the story of the book of Acts uh, helps us to do, is to situate our lives, situate our lives with God uh, in such a way that His purpose becomes our purpose, where our lives are consumed Uh, rather than with all of the smaller purposes of our own agendas and our own ideas, that our lives are filled with a purpose that's larger than ourselves, the purpose uh, of God's kingdom in the world, and uh, that we experience ourselves being filled with a new power, that God doesn't just leave His church with a job to do. Uh, He fills uh, us with all that we need to do that job by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so, uh, in this exciting, uh, you know, the story of the early church and its kind of spontaneous expansion across the Roman Empire is just one of the true marvels uh, of Scripture. It's a miracle of history to study. And so, let's, uh, let's give our attention to God's Word. Our Scripture reading this morning is going to be from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, this reading is Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, as we start our 2022 together, uh, and we turn our attention uh, to who we want to be as a group of people, who we want to be as individuals, who we want to be as a church, Uh, This passage is a real gift to us. This is one of my favorite little stories in the book of Acts. It's the story, really, of God's movement, the movement of God's grace in one city, in one church, 
And we see a church go from being planted uh, as people come and share the gospel there, uh, through its growth, more and more people coming to believe, and then ultimately it becoming a generous church, sending money and people uh, to resource uh, the church around the, the known world at the time. It's a beautiful uh, case study of how the gospel creates life in a people. There was a, a, a theologian and historian who passed away this past year, a man named Richard Lovelace, taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Massachusetts. And he gave his life uh, to being a student of renewal and revival movements around the world. His entire scholarly life was built around really answering one question, how does God bring renewal to individuals and to churches in small-scale ways and in large-scale ways? And so he studied historically uh, the great revival movements in world history. He studied the First Great Awakening uh, in the United States and in Britain. He studied the revival at Ulster in the 1850s, the Welsh Revival of 1904 and 05, the Pyongyang Revival, which was a revival that swept across Korea in the first part of the 20th century, the spontaneous expansion of the African church in the mid-20th century. And what he, he, you know, I appreciate about his work is that he said, look, there's nothing that we can do as people to make revival happen, to make renewal happen, right? God's spirit blows where it will. God's grace falls where it will. But what are the common things that we can look at and say, you know what, these are the things that we do to put ourselves in a position for renewal, to put ourselves in a position where God's spirit uh, can move us, can shape us, can influence us. And so he looked at these case studies over the years, and that's really what this story in Acts 11 is. It's a case study about what God did in one place, in one time, and how he used that to change many lives. And as such, I think it frames our prayers, my prayers for our church as we head into 2022. Lord, how might you bring renewal in us, right? How might your grace uh, become more and more real to us, your love become more transformative for us, so that your grace flows through us into bearing fruit in our city, bearing fruit in our world. And I pray that for your individual lives, for my individual life, that we would come to know Jesus' grace more and more personally and really, and as a church, right, that we would be renewed by his love and his grace and be useful to him and his mission. And so let's just walk through this passage. It's a, it's a really, it's one of my favorites in Acts. It begins in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so this is, uh, if you remember, uh, you know, I know we took a break at Advent, so you might have forgotten some of the story that happened before that. But remember, Jesus at his resurrection told the apostles, told his early church, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right, the story, that's really the outline of the book of Acts. It's gonna be about the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But uh, what happened in those early pages was that the first church uh, put down roots in Jerusalem. Every one of them were Israelites. They were, they were uh, Jewish men in the, in the leadership. 
And they stayed there in the capital of Israel. They stayed in Jerusalem. That became their home base. And it wasn't until persecution started. It wasn't until Stephen was martyred that we began to see the church start to spread out. And over the first chapters of that spreading, they went primarily to other Jews to share the message of Jesus. So their message to their fellow uh, Old Testament believers, their fellow Jews, was Jesus is the Messiah. Right? He's the long-awaited, promised one that the prophets and the law all pointed us to. But I love this, uh, this note that it was in persecution that they scattered. Right? It was in their experience of suffering that they were led out and bared incredible fruit in spreading the good news. This is a pattern that we see over and over again in the scriptures that seems to be a pattern of the Christian life and a pattern of Christian mission is that when we suffer, right, when we experience hardship, God means to use that to bring life, right? That suffering never is the last word in our lives, that sin and shame isn't the last word of our lives, but that God uses the difficult places. He uses the difficult parts of our life for his own glory, to bring us to more and more abundant life. And this could be seen as just kind of wishful thinking, right? You know, ah, cheer up. It's bad now. It's going to get better. But that's not what it is. Uh, The reason that this is the logic of Christianity is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, I wouldn't stand up here and tell you that your suffering is going to lead to more life that life breaks out of death, that that mercy comes out of sin, right? No, it's not wishful thinking. Life comes on the other side of death because Jesus is raised from the dead, because God brought life out of the tragedy of the death of the Son of God, that the cross doesn't have the last word in the life of Jesus, but that he comes into new life and he invites us with him, that he brings us into new life. And so therefore we can know that the way up is down, Right, that the way to abundance is through emptiness. Right, it's when, it's when, when we start to lose those things that we're attached to that we thought we could never lose, that we come out and to realize all that Jesus has to offer for us. What happened to the early church when they began to suffer persecution in Jerusalem was they began to get pushed out of a home that they were very, very comfortable in. Right, a home that they didn't think that they could live outside of. But when persecution came, what they realized was this is not not really home, right? This is not really a place where we can put down roots and be comfortable and have it easy, right? When you start to realize that what you thought was a comfortable home isn't all that comfortable, they then strike out and say, well, look, if that's not home, then we can be at home anywhere. If 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 we can lose that, then we can find life wherever it is that God scatters us, wherever it is that he sends us. And brothers and sisters, these last couple years have been a time, uh, haven't they, where we've experienced some suffering, right? We've experienced suffering at individual levels. We've known people who've lost loved ones, people who've lost jobs, people who've had a hard time. At a wider cultural level, we've experienced it as a period of dislocation, right? Where we've experienced this turmoil uh, between COVID and political and social and cultural unrest, that all of a sudden things that once felt comfortable and homey start to feel dislocated and disjointed. And my prayer for us, my hope for us, the hope of the gospel for us, 
is that God uses that dislocation. He uses that experience of suffering, not to, for us to pull into ourselves, but for us to lean more and more into his mercy and to step out more and more into his mission. Right? One, one way that people deal with suffering is pulling into themselves, isn't it? Right? Sometimes when you're hurting, sometimes when you're confused, sometimes when uh, you're all disjointed, we get really self-protective. And we say, well, you know what? I'm not going to suffer anymore. I'm not going to be hurt again. I'm not going to trust again. I'm going to just kind of take care of myself. But because of Jesus, because of the gift of his Holy Spirit with us, because of the, the hope of resurrection, as Christians, we can be those people who, when we encounter suffering, lean not in but out. We lean on one another to receive care, support, and love. And we lean out with new purpose, recognizing that in every suffering, there's opportunity. That in the dislocation and the losing of what felt comfortable and homey, God is preparing us to step out of our comfort zones and to reach into his mission. And so they go and they scatter. We're told that they go to Phoenicia on the coast, they go to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean, and they go, some of them, to Antioch. And as they went, they spoke the word to no one except for Jews, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Remember what Willie uh, preached last week was this incredible, uh, it's been building for a couple of chapters in Acts, which is this turn uh, from, from purely an Israelite mission to a Gentile mission. Right? We saw the conversion of Saul, who had become the Apostle Paul, the uh, Apostle to the Gentiles. We saw Peter uh, in the vision that he received of, of God opening up uh, the, the, uh, the sheet from heaven and, and letting go all of the animals and saying there's no more clean or unclean. We saw Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion, right, welcome him into his household. And so we've been seeing this movement from Jews only to Jews and Gentiles in the church. And we're told kind of simultaneously to all that going on that some men who are left anonymous, I love that, some of them, just some of these guys, uh, went into Antioch and they didn't just preach at the synagogue. They didn't just preach in the temple. They preached to uh, these people who are called here the Hellenists. The Hellenists uh, meant people who uh, were Greek in their language, in their culture, maybe in their religion, and in their outlook on life. Right? There had been exposure to Gentiles throughout. Willie did a great job of laying this out last week. There had been Gentiles coming in in the Gospels. There had been stories, kind of these one-off stories of Gentile exposure in the early part of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip and Cornelius. But now these guys go in and at a large scale, they come running into people who are culturally different than them. Culturally, these people weren't Jews, they were Greek. Greek language, Greek customs, Greek religion. And this happened in the city of Antioch, which I really enjoyed learning about more this week. Antioch was a large, diverse, and cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire. The early historian Josephus calls uh, Antioch, says that Antioch was known as the third city of the Roman Empire. So think Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. That was their New York, their biggest city. Uh, Alexandria in Egypt was the second city of the empire. That was their L.A. 
And so Antioch was their Chicago, uh, the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire was this city in Antioch. Of all of those cities, it was maybe the most diverse of any of them. It had been founded under Alexander the Great. One of his generals was given this area and started the city of Antioch. So it had deep Greek roots. It also had a large Jewish community of their diaspora had been granted citizenship in the early days of Antioch. So there was a large Jewish population in Antioch. It had then been taken over by the Romans and had become a major trade and military outpost of the Romans. So there was a large Roman and Latin speaking population. But even more than that, this is wild. It was referred to uh, by residents as the Queen of the East because there was such a large Eastern population in Antioch which meant that it had Persian residents, people from contemporary Iran. Uh, But not only that, we have evidence that there was an Indian population in Antioch and even an early Chinese population in Antioch. And so, I mean, this is, you know, this kind of challenges, for me at least, the way we think of the ancient world, right? I tend to think that we found out about China when Marco Polo went over there. But already in ancient Rome, there was this incredible exchange of goods and ideas that happened through places like Antioch. And you start to see that, I mean, almost like if you go to New York today where you've got Little Italy and you've got Chinatown and you've got uh, the Jewish neighborhood over here and you've got the Hispanic neighborhoods over here, there you started to have this incredible tapestry of all sorts of different people living in this large city together. We don't know exactly how large it was, but on estimates, it was, you know, Jerusalem's been the biggest city we've encountered so far in the book of Acts. And Antioch was somewhere between 10 and 20 times the size of Jerusalem. And so it's into that giant, diverse city that these anonymous men come and start preaching the good news of Jesus. And we're told that some believed. Some, not just of the Jews, but of this Greek cultural background, began to believe the gospel. I love the way, this is just, you know, it's just kind of a footnote here. But we're told in verse 20 that they were preaching the Lord Jesus. This is a different terminology than we've seen so far in the content of the preaching. Not in the substance of it, right? They're still preaching Jesus. But they're no longer preaching, usually up to this point in Acts, he's been referred to as Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the one who came as the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes. But if you're a Greek-speaking, Greek-customed or Roman-customed person living in cosmopolitan Antioch, and somebody comes to you and says, hey, good news, Jesus is the Messiah, you go, great, what's a Messiah? I don't know what one of those is. I wasn't waiting on one of those. But to be told that Jesus is Lord... Jesus Kyrios. Lord was not a particularly religious term. You could say that Caesar was Lord, Alexander was Lord, Herod was Lord. Lord meant king. Lord meant a royal person who was owed uh, all of your allegiance and your obedience. And so they come, not with a new message, it's the same message, but putting that message in terms that the people there that they were preaching to could begin to understand. And this is what Christian missionaries and Christian believers have been doing around the world throughout our history, is taking a a, a settled message, the, the apostles' teaching handed down from Jesus, but putting it into the language of every culture under heaven 
teaching people, whatever their background, how to think of this one who came, not only as the Messiah of the Jews, but as the Lord and Savior of all people. The one who came saying that he's not just a way and a truth and a life for one particular little subset of the world's population, but that he's the way and the truth and the life for every culture, every ethnicity, every nation. And so they come and they preach Jesus, the Lord. And we're told uh, that many people, many of these Greek-speaking people, uh, believed. They came into the faith. I, I love the, the phrase that's used here is that they were added to the Lord. They were added to the Lord. That like, you know, Paul will later on develop the metaphor that the, the church is the body of Christ, that we, the church is the living, tangible expression of Christ. And Luke here says that when people come to believe, they're added not just to the church, but they're added to the Lord. They become a part of his body. They become engrafted into the one people, the one body of Jesus. And so then the church hears about this. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, I love this. Remember, we're told that the whole church scatters and they go out on this journey where all of a sudden every city in the empire becomes a potential home for the church. But Jerusalem remained the core of the church's uh, life. The apostles, we're told, stayed in Jerusalem, right? These people that remember in Acts 2, the early church, were told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right, the apostles were the, the, the men who had been entrusted with, by Jesus with the authority to make sure that his teachings and his life and his resurrection and his death, all of that, that his life and his teaching was passed down to the church. They were entrusted with a message that they were then supposed to invest in others and, and protect and to see it grow. Some of them went on to write gospel accounts, you know, accounts of his life. Others went on to write letters and plant churches and do incredible things. But they, at this point, are all in Jerusalem. These are men uh, who had come to know and love Jesus. Remember, these are men who'd left everything they knew. Matthew left his tax collector's booth. Simon Peter left his fishing nets. Right? These men had left everything to follow Jesus. They'd seen his crucifixion. Right? Not all of them from up close as they scattered. Some denied him. But these were men who'd been restored in his resurrection. Remember Peter there at the beach being given over a breakfast of fish, the, the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus, given a, a position of leadership and shepherding within the church. These were men who, when they saw Jesus ascend to heaven, heard the words, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So by this point in their life, these are faithful men, men who've, who've failed, who've been broken, who've been restored, who are trying to do their job faithfully and well of, of passing down the message of Jesus. And then they get word of this church in Antioch where they hear, turn, they, they hear that people have started to believe who aren't just Jews like they were. And they start to have questions about it. They start to wonder, could people in that big, crazy city of Antioch, could people with all of those crazy practices and beliefs and languages and cultures, is it really possible that they could believe like we believe? Is it really possible that there could be a church there, just like there's a church here? Is it possible 
that there could be church leaders there who are capable of leading the church? Could what we hear about happening there be genuine? We need to go check it out. We need to go make sure that it squares with the apostles' teaching, with our teaching. And you know, there's a part of us, uh, if I'm honest, there's a part of me uh, that, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Gen Xer. I was born right on the line between Gen X and a millennial, but I'm, I'm, Gen, I'm more of a Gen X guy. We have an inherent, in my generation uh, and younger, this inherent distrust of authority, right? There's, an, there's something in me that when you hear the apostles sent a delegation to make sure that those Antioch people were in line, there's a part of me that just goes, no, man, no, they're not, they can't tell you what to do, right? God's doing something. He's reaching new people. New stuff's going on. They need to get with the program. But we have to recognize that that is a, for me, that is a cultural blind spot, right? It is a cultural blind spot to assume that what is traditional and what is hierarchical is bad and what's new and fresh and egalitarian is good, right? To, To walk around thinking that the smartest and wisest people in the world are the people who happen to be alive right now and who are right around your age, the the book of Proverbs has a word for that, and it's foolishness, right? To, to believe that you have nothing to gain from those who've gone before, from a tradition that men and women have believed and loved and died for over the course of thousands of years, right? That there is something to be said. There's, I mean, it's, it's hugely important in the Christian church for us not to shut off the hope of new expressions, of new outpourings of the Spirit, new works of God's mission, but to make sure that it squares with the, the teaching handed down. Right? That, that, that if, if a work, if something is happening in the world that is genuinely to be celebrated, that is something that really is of God's doing, then it ought to square with what Paul and Luke and Mark and Matthew thought about it what Peter and James and John thought about it. Even going on, not to the same extent, but ought to even square with what people like Jerome and Augustine and Polycarp and Irenaeus, these other men and women of faith who invested their lives in this, that it squares with the apostles' teaching. And so Christian mission is lived in this tension right, outward-looking, hopeful, expecting to find God's grace working in places you never expected, expecting to see life breaking out in the margins, expecting to see new cultural uh, expressions of Christianity all the time. So outward-looking, but also holding on to the scriptures, holding on to the tradition, holding on to the faith handed down to us. And so the apostles are trying to do that job well with what's going on in Antioch. And so you know what they do? They send the biggest hearted guy they know. They send the most loving and encouraging guy in their entire body. I imagine them sitting around going, man, we've got, we wonder what's going on over there, but we don't want to discourage them in any way. We don't want to, we don't want to come down with a heavy hand. We don't want to uh, quench at all what the Spirit's doing. Who should we send? And they all go, I know exactly who we should send. We should send Barnabas. Barnabas uh, was not his given name at birth. His name was Joseph. 
But when he became a believer and came into the church, they gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That he was, he's one of the great friends in all of history. One of the great, uh, a man who just had this gift of friendship that we see uh, happening so much that the apostles name him son of encouragement. And we see him, he's one of the first people that the apostle Paul meets immediately after his, he's converted and ceases uh, persecuting and murdering Christians and comes in, it's Barnabas that sticks up for him. It's Barnabas that brings him and introduces him to the apostles and says, no, you can trust him. He's changed. And so they send Barnabas to go and to do his Barnabas work, to do his encouraging work. And you know what Barnabas finds when he gets there? He says, what's happening here is beautiful. What's happening here, he says, is the grace of God. 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You know, the grace of God isn't typically something you can see, right? If I were to come up to you and go, hey, have you seen grace? What does grace look like? And maybe you have a friend named Grace, and you could tell me what she looks like. But if I were to ask you, what does grace look like? You'd go, well, grace, you can't see grace. Grace is like love. It's like justice. It's, a, it's an idea, right? Yet when, when Barnabas got there and he heard their preaching and he heard their songs and he prayed with them and he saw the, what was going on in their life, you know what he said he saw? The grace of God. Yes. That grace, when it gets a grip on a group of people, when a group of people get caught up in God's grace, Grace does become something you can see. You can see its fruit. You can see what it looks like as it works its way out in relationships and in worship and in mercy and in generosity and love. That the church becomes grace that you can see. And Barnabas sees all that's going on there and he says, you know what, this is the grace of God. And he was glad he only told them one thing, which is to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Basically saying, look, renewal, revival is great, but don't give up on the day-to-day, -day, right? When it gets hard, it's not always going to be, you know, spontaneous and energetic and incredible. Sometimes it's going to be a daily faithfulness. So don't give up. Be steadfast. Keep a good purpose. Be rooted and not blown this way and that. And so he says, hey, I know just the guy to help with this. And he goes and he brings Saul, brings Paul, down to help him. And for a year, they teach these men and women and children the faith of Jesus. They teach them what, who Jesus was and what he taught and how to live, how to be a church. He invests this year in them. And then I love the line in verse 26. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first place in Acts that the word Christian is used. Luke is referred to them as followers of the way, as believers, as disciples. But in Jerusalem, and in any place they had gone so far, nobody yet had called them Christians. But it was in Antioch, that diverse and cosmopolitan city, that the name Christian was given to the church by their neighbors. You know, when the church was just in Israel, when the church was in Jerusalem... The Christians weren't all that distinguishable from their neighbors, right? Christians were 
uh, it could be thought of as kind of a sect or a, a group within Judaism who had come to embrace the Messiah. So the Christians were just like everybody else except for with Jesus, right? The Christians were like their neighbors, but with some Jesus added in. And it wasn't until the church hit a city like Antioch, hit a city where you had all sorts of different kinds of people, different kinds of religions, different kinds of ideas, that people looked at them and said, no, no, you know what? That is something different. That's not just, those aren't just Jews that have added Jesus. Those aren't just Greek speakers, pagans who've added Jesus to their pantheon of gods. Those aren't just the Persians who've added some Jesus, not just the Romans. That's a different kind of thing. They're no longer just like their neighbors, but with something different. They're now a unique and identifiable counterculture. To say, you know what, those people aren't just like everybody else. It's its own thing. Christians, to call them Christians, uh, it, it can be translated those who are like Christ or little Christs. It's similar to the way that people would designate people who followed a leader. So the Herodians were those who followed Herod. The Caesareans were those who followed Caesar. And Christians were those who followed Christ, who ordered their life by the, wor by the word of their leader, their teacher, Jesus. And so what we begin to see is that in a pluralist world, in a world not unlike our own, that it's the lifestyle of the Christian community that begins to get the attention of their neighbors, right? Where people begin to look at them and say, you know what, there's something different that's happening there. And that, you know, brothers and sisters, that's been our goal and our hope for our church for a very long time, right? Is that people, the way that we live our life together, the way that we forgive one another and love one another and share our possessions and share our life together, the way that we serve, would lead people to go, you know what, that, that, is, that church is something different, right? They're not just a one cultural subset who've added Jesus to their already existing cultural background, right? Those aren't just the Republicans who add Jesus or the Democrats who add Jesus. Those aren't just the Asian folks or the white folks or the black folks or the Latino folks. That's a different culture, a different community where they're defined not by their political views, not by their ethnicity, not by their culture, but they're defined by a new thing, yeah. where they're defined by Jesus. And we start to see what that looks like for them. It shows itself in generosity. This man, Agabus, comes and he tells them that there's about to be a famine. And so all the people, were told, did everything in their ability... Those who had a lot gave a lot. Those who had a little gave a little. And they sent it to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to provide for those who were affected by this famine. Right? What does John tell us, in John, or Jesus tell us in John 3.16? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That a mark of those who know Jesus is that we give. That we begin to follow the God who is a giving, who is a generous God. And so the people begin to give generously to any who have need, not just those in Antioch, but those back home in Jerusalem. So they give their wealth. Later on, at the start of verse 13, we're going to learn that they give more than just their wealth. Chapter 13 says this, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, that mean, uh, means black, Right, so we talked about the diversity of this population. There were at least some of African descent. So Simon, who was called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so a ruler's best friend, and Saul. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They give their money, but more than that, they give their people. They, give, they don't just give you know, the extra people. The, they give their best people. They give Barnabas and Saul. They send them out to new mission fields. They hold their relationships and their wealth with an open hand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, in his letters and papers from prison, says this. It's a uh, German theologian writing from essentially a Nazi concentration camp, wrestling with what it means to be the church in a world that's largely forgotten. He says this. He says, the church is the church only when it, when it exists for others. The church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ and to exist for others. That's what we see happening in Antioch. They're knit together as a church, they're given grace, and then they begin giving it away. They begin to exist for others. May God do the same thing in our our lives and in our church. Fill us with his grace, not just for our own sake, but so that we can live for the good of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that, like that church in Antioch, that you would do renewing and reviving work in us. Lord, that the wind of your spirit would blow and that our hearts would be renewed by your grace. That full of grace, that we would speak your truth to our neighbors, that we would love them in tangible ways, that we'd love one another in such ways that we can see grace in and among us. And Lord, we pray that just as they were seen by their neighbors to be Christians, to be something different. Lord, that you too, by your grace, would shape us to be something different, to be a distinctive expression of your kingdom in our place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.